welcome to rhetoric Orama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. Here are your hosts, Dr. David R. Dewberry and Dr. Tim, as seen on TV, McGee. I'm Dave. And I'm Tim. And today we continue our second season of rhetoric Orama by discussing the wonderful world of rhetoric. Today's topic is the power and the mystery of televangelism. But first, let's hear some untranslated Latin or Greek to get us started. Neque akendunt lucernam et ponunt eam submodio sed super candelabrum ut luceat omnibus qui in domo sunt. Tim, what is televangelism? To most minds, it simply refers to preachers on TV. But if we look to the Greek roots of the words... And why wouldn't we do that, Tim? (laughs) No reason not to. The tele of television, telephone, telegram, telescope means far or distant. And an evangelist is a bringer of good news. So a televangelist is someone who spreads good news far and wide. The evangelists of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were bringing the good news of redemption to the followers of Christ. Mm. But Tim, uh, you're not suggesting that uh, Jesus was a televangelist, were you? Well, hold on there, Doubting Dave. When he gives his number one hit, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew Matthew 5.1 tells us, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So he went up on the side of a mountain so he could broadcast his teachings far enough to reach the multitude. Well, that's a, I mean, that's a good point, but uh, I think we should probably focus on the old modern televangelists, you know, the ones during the age of electricity. Fair enough, my son. All right. So uh, what I see uh, in all this is a fundamental shift in the delivery of the good news. Uh, in the days of yore, you went to church or a temple or a mosque to hear the preacher, but now the, uh, the preacher comes to you, right, through some sort of mass media technology. Good point. But the dawn of radio was not the first time the preacher brought the good news to you. Long before WBZ hit the airwaves in 1921, there was a tradition of revival meetings. Some silver-tongued minister pitches a tent on the outskirts of town, hands out some flyers, and the next thing you know, the multitudes hearing the good news, singing hymns, maybe even regaining the ability to walk without crutches. And one prominent early American revival preacher was named Billy Sunday. Uh, Billy Sunday? Yeah, yeah it's, uh, was he any rela- uh, relation to that guy, Billy Saturday Night? The Billy Saturday Night was not nearly as successful in the evangelical game. That's right. So William Ashley Sunday was a successful Major League Baseball player before he converted to evangelical Christianity in the 1880s. He became the most successful American evangelist drawing the largest crowds before the advent of electronic sound systems. Ah, but once uh, once the old technology came into play, things were a little different, right? Mm. Uh, so uh, the nature of televangelism changed around the 1920s uh, with the advent and widespread use of the radio. Um, and in those times, as is today, there's an infinite amount of public airwaves, right? So if you look at your radio dial in your old car, you only see, you know, you don't see a thousand kind of different frequencies. There's just a few. And because of that... Congress has the ability and the obligation to regulate that to make sure that people are using the public airwaves in an appropriate manner. And one of the things that Congress wanted uh, people who had a license for the public airwaves uh, to do is to air stuff that was in the, quote, public interest. And one of those things was, you guessed it, religious programming. And televangelism really, really took off. 
uh, with that. As did the problems with televangelism. Mm -hmm. Father Charles Coughlin was the first religious broadcaster to attract a mass audience in the 1930s. Eventually, his political attacks on FDR, along with his anti-Semitism and praise for Hitler and Mussolini, Mussolini became too much for, for CBS and his parish, who thought he was becoming too much of a demagogue. Even Dr. Seuss criticized Coughlin in a cartoon. I mean, the only way you can get worse than having Hitler and Mussolini uh, like you is when Dr. Seuss turns on you. That's I, I agree. That's, that's terrible. Uh, so in response to all this, uh, Coughlin and others, uh, the networks gave uh, more airtime. They started to give airtime to uh, the quote-unquote more mainstream or in quote-unquote less controversial religions. Basically, uh, a more appeasing religious message uh, that wasn't so full of hate and all that kind of stuff. And um, there were a certain number of religious groups that got these airtimes, but other uh, uh, religions were kind of marginalized. And two groups that were kind of upset about this move uh, were the evangelicals and the fundamentalist religions. Not saying they necessarily, you know, so, uh, uh, were engaged in hate speech and hate rhetoric and stuff like that. Uh, but they just found themselves kind of marginalized during this situation. So around the 1960s and into the 70s and even 80s, uh, these groups, the evangelicals and the fundamentalist religions, started to buy airtime. Rather than having it be given to them in the public interest, uh, they started asking and paying for this airtime. And this meant that televangelists started to need money, right? Money mm. to buy that airtime. Uh, and even some televangelists in churches uh, started their own TV networks and Impressive. had 20, yeah, 24, you know, you could get uh, the Lord's message 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And this is where we start to get into the actual rhetoric of televangelism. Finally. Finally, right? So one of the primary rhetorical appeals uh, that televangelists used to get money, uh, to get people at home to send in money, was this thing called the prosperity gospel, which goes, you know, uh, something like that wealth is a sign of God's favor. If you're rich, uh, you should praise that because that's God's will for you to be rich. God wanted you to have those two $300 million private jets to help spread the word of God and to have those vacations, vacations in Aspen and Safari resorts to rest from spreading the word of God. And, and Tim, those are actually legitimate arguments made by some televangelists uh, within the past 20 years. Um, I think your use of the word legitimate there is uh, open to debate, but the <laughs> fact that these are actual yeah. arguments, yes, I'll buy that. Okay. Uh, yeah, actual arguments. <laughs> Uh, legitimate in the eyes of the televangelists, we might say. Mm. But anyway, uh, a lot of evangelical and fundamentalist televangelists focused on needing money to spread the word of God to fight the sexual revolution, feminism, gay rights, and other such kind of topics during the 70s and 80s. And because of this, a lot of uh, religious rhetoric can be described as a, a thin veneer for Christian conservative political agenda like Father Coughlin. Exactly, like Father Coughlin. And that uh, 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 other contemporary, more contemporary, I should say, uh, televangelists uh, could be described the same by many. Not necessarily all televangelists were, but some were. So televangelists also framed these uh, perpetual requests for financial support as a seed of sorts. Uh, basically, if you 
plant that seed by donating money to the televangelist, that uh, will be uh, that seed will grow. It will come back to the donor and benefit everyone, right? And so that's kind of an extension of that prosperity gospel. And those two arguments, the prosperity uh, uh, prosperity gospel and that seed argument, it worked. It worked very well. Uh, but some took it a little bit too far. So Tim, you want to tell us about a few uh, televangelists? Sure. In addition to Billy Sunday and Father Coughlin, another early televangelist with great success was the Reverend Fulton J. Sheehan. He was huge from the 30s to the late 60s and even won a couple of Emmys. While Billy Graham was not only extremely popular for decades, but he also served as spiritual advisor to every American president from Harry Truman to Barack Obama. But then there are those who got caught not practicing what they preached, including Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and Jimmy Swaggart, whose sexcapades raised some eyebrows. Then there was Ted Haggard's meth-fueled hookups with a male prostitute. More recently, Jerry Falwell Jr. fell from grace and lost his cushy gig as president of Liberty University. Wikipedia lists about 150 American televangelists, another dozen in Brazil, as well as televangelists of Islam and Hinduism, while Rabbi Jan Bresky, a Tampa Bay radio and television preacher, was called the Jewish Billy Graham. Now, and those are all good examples. Uh, and I think that last one specifically kind of uh, uh, underscores the importance of noticing that other religions, right, not just conservative Christian uh, religious uh, ideas had televangelists. Uh, Islam has televangelists, all sorts of. Uh, there's also faith healers in various religions, right? They, they will smack you in the head and somehow you're able to walk. But um, these, uh, these kind of bad things that uh, we know from uh, Jimmy and Swagger, Tammy Faye Baker and all that kind of stuff, a lot of people attribute their uh, indiscretions as for the decline of televangelism in the 90s uh, but, you know, I recently found something new, Tim. Are you ready for What's this that? one? Yes. That some, this guy who studies televangelism uh, said there's the, the, the scandals were a symptom of the problems of televangelism and were not the problem in itself. The real problem was that the competition became so fierce between all these televangelists that uh, they kind of drowned the market. Right? Uh-huh. And that market's unregulated. We kind of talked about that. And that kind of overmixing of religion with politics uh, drove some away. You know, some, some uh, uh, members of churches were okay with it, but others felt that being too political could drive people away from the word of Jesus, which is fundamentally the goal of uh, fundamentalist and evangelical kind of religious ideas. Mm-hmm. So I found, I found that to be worthwhile, that it wasn't just those, uh, as you call them, sexcapades. Yeah, uh, which you know lowered pants and raised eyebrows, um, <laughs> and that. So you ready for some take-home points, Tim? Oh, I've got yes. You're going to give your televit your take-home point first. Sure. Uh, so televangelism is a genre of religious rhetoric that spreads the word of Jesus. Uh, but as we mentioned, there's other televangelists uh, uh, in other religions too, and this is done via the media. But that media has some constraints, right? Put on it, and those constraints. Uh, in addition to those moral failings that we just mentioned of the televangelist, help shape that rhetoric of the televangelist and shape the rhetoric about the televangelist. I think we focused more on the former than the latter there. Uh, And while we haven't gone much into the rhetoric about televangelism, 
the, these issues uh, existed before televangelizing happened, right? This kind of indiscretion, uh, these moral failings, those happened way before. And I always found it interesting that, um, that some of these televangelists were able to recover from these sex scandals uh, because it fit within the ideology of religion where we are all sinners mm. and we're capable of redemption in the eyes of the Lord. So uh, uh, that almost worked not to their benefit, but it helped to redeem themselves uh, in the eyes of the Lord. In the eyes of the networks and the viewers sending money, that's a different story. Good point. Uh, here's my take-home point. I can't help thinking that Lord Acton's adage that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely explains why so many televangelists have succumbed to corruption because the mass media technology gave these preachers way more power and money than they could handle without getting scorched. I love it, Tim. All right. You ready for some challenges? Indeed. How about you go first? Okay. Dave. Yes. Um, I personally believe that you have a lovely voice, and I know that one of our listeners always praises the quality of your voice. Is that and listener given, me? <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's another listener. So okay. uh, given uh, that you have this sort of lovely voice, and given what you know of rhetoric, and given that televangelists sometimes have not one, but two $300 million Learjets, <laughs> why have you not gone into televangelism? Uh, that is a good question. I know the answer very easily. Uh, and that I was not raised in a very religious household. Okay. I mean, that's not a very interesting answer, but it's just, uh, uh, you know, it seems if you're going to legitimately spread the word of, 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 the, of the Lord, of God, Jesus, uh, or other religions, that, that you should have some firm grounding and belief in that. And for whatever reason, my parents just didn't take me there and it never went. And for the same reason, I don't drink coffee because they just didn't drink coffee. So I blame it, like many of my other problems, on my parents. That, that's a good good example. Uh, I, I think, you know, if my parents had named me Mookie, I would have been a Major League Baseball player. But they didn't. And yeah. so I was never any good at baseball. Huh. <laughs> What's in a name? All right, you ready for yours? Yes. Okay, Tim. Um, as you know, I'm not necessarily a rhetorician, but I'm more of a free speech guy. So I'm into, into issues of free speech. And my question builds on that idea. So in on the public airwaves, Congress, the FCC, and other organizations have the ability and the responsibility to regulate commercial speech, advertisements and whatnot that might be fraudulent or deceptive to prevent people from being victims of fraud. So if there was a commercial that said, you know, if you take these, uh, chew on these coral capsules, you'll be cured of cancer, right? Mm. The government's not going to put up with that because that's not true. And that can lead people to being the victim of fraud. Okay. Yes. Now, my question to you, Tim, is Congress and the government have been widely, widely uh, or stayed far, far away from regulating televangelists because of freedom of religion and other issues. But my question to you, Tim, should Congress regulate religious programming because if you were to get the uh, uh, wrong religious message, not only would you be a victim of fraud, you would be a victim of something worse, eternal damnation. Mm. So shouldn't Congress regulate the rhetoric of religion to make sure that we're getting the right Lord and Savior of our everlasting souls? Well, 
I would say they should if indeed religion were similar to the other kinds of businesses like selling coral capsules, etc. Uh -huh. But because of the spiritual rather than material basis of religion, I think that's what lets Congress say, we're not going to go there. So that whole idea of separation of church and state uh -huh. sort of radiates out to the kind of activity that uh, religions do. So, you know, some people say religion is not a business. Uh, some people say education is not a business. But all of these could be looked at businesses because of the fact that they have customers, they have exchange of goods and services for money, etc. $300 million jets. Exactly. <laughs> but it is the spiritual dimension of religion that gives Congress sort of the out to say, um, we regulate other things. So if you're selling vitamins that in turn uh, are really no benefit and might be harmful to you, we'll regulate that. But if you're sending, selling ideas about your soul and the afterlife, it's the spiritual nature of it that gets it a pass. Well, I like your answer, Tim, but I wonder how many people who believe that the uh, free market is a truly religious, spiritual kind of situation would respond. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's a good question, Tim. I liked it. Good answer, too. So uh, around this time, Tim, we usually offer our uh, listeners some bonus content. But through our first two seasons, we've had a number of questions sent to us. And so we're going to uh, answer a few questions rather than give you some sweet, tasty bonus content. So uh, how about this? How about I read the questions and you can kind of take them on? Okay. I'll give that a try. Okay. So our first question comes from Andrew in Lambertville, New Jersey. Hi, Andrew. Uh, he writes, uh, based upon your remarks about Buddhist rhetoric not being conducive to firing up the base at, political, at a political rally or prosecuting a criminal in the court of law, it looks to me like there is no such thing as Buddhist rhetoric. Oh, Tim, that seems like it, a shot. Yes, and I can, I can understand that entirely. But again, what that does is it concentrates on sort of one pole of the continuum of rhetoric. Indeed, there are those people who put, who just imagine rhetoric is only about firing up the base or uh, convicting a criminal, etc., using speech for that purposes. But there's the entire other extreme. Uh, and even in the middle, the most neutral thing is effective oral and written argument. So uh, within the Buddhist rhetoric, we saw that they did have ethical principles guiding them. And that's what would make it seem like you couldn't use it for some of the things for which rhetoric is often used. But it doesn't mean that you can't use it from the middle of that continuum all the way farther over to the opposite side. Mm, I like it. Our next question comes from a Susanna from Ewing, New Jersey. That's a lovely name, isn't it? It is. It is a it lovely is. name. She writes in Season 2, Episode 6, uh, that episode was about hagiography. She writes, uh, Were most or all tales told by these biographers of saints about people who were in religious orders during their lifetime? The reason I ask this question is that if all these stories were told about people in the religious order, uh, were hagiographers just marketers for, the, for that religious order? That's a good question. And so... Uh, when you think of the fact that central to uh, Christianity and other religions is this idea of testifying. You're going to testify uh, to the Lord. So um, these people had part of their theological system, the idea that they're 
required to spread the good word. And then the other thing is that during this time, not everybody could read and write. And reading and writing was often centered in places like monasteries, etc. So uh, these uh, monks and uh, abbots in their abbeys were, one, doing what was consistent with their religious beliefs, uh, but indeed, because they had sort of a monopoly uh, on writing, they could uh, write these uh, hagiographies that would indeed get people to think positively of their saints and get people to emulate their saints and not necessarily uh, join the monastery or the abbey, but if that happened, that too would be a positive outcome. I like it. Uh, Tim, you want to read the last question? Sure. The last question comes from Layla from Music Lake, Pennsylvania. She writes, my husband and I both have college degrees, as do our three children, but not one of us ever took a course in rhetoric. As I learn about this fascinating and useful discipline, I'm wondering why we were never taught any of this in school. We were all, were we all just ripped off? Uh, Layla from um, uh, Pennsylvania, yes. <laughs> yes, you are, you are horribly ripped off. Uh, fortunately, you can listen to rhetoric Rama. Uh, episode out every month where you can learn all this tasty stuff and it's f- for free. Uh, kind of, sort of. Uh, we do have our sponsors and so let's go ahead and get to that. So Tim, who's sponsoring this episode? All right. This sponsor you're going to like because not only is offering a wonderful goods and service, but basically it's sort of a, a philanthropic uh, appeal at the same time. People who like meat but don't want to eat animals now have a variety of plant-based menu items to choose from, including impossible burgers and simulated fish fillets. But that has caused significant economic hardship to ranchers and fishermen. But thanks to ingenious culinary breakthroughs, you can now dine on a wide variety of meat-based fruits, vegetables, and dessert items. Applying the same research that led the faux burger burger folk to use beet juice to simulate blood in their ground non-beef. The makers of meatsicles are using pig's blood to simulate raspberry sorbet. Adding a dollop of ground horse hooves, they came up with a cranberry sauce replica that holds the iconic shape of the ridged can, even at room temperature. So the next time you're invited to a vegan barbecue, surprise your host with a delicious dessert item straight from the slaughterhouse. Find out more at meatsicles.com. I'm David R. Dewberry, and that's Tim as seen on TV McGee. We're professors of communication at Ryder University. And this has been rhetoric Orama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. If you have any questions or looking for more information, you can contact us via our website, rhetoric.fun, or consult your local library. And we'd like to sign off by wishing our co-host, Dr. Tim McGee, a happy birthday. Well, thank you very much. Shall we go out for a real cheeseburger? Uh, there's everything is a legitimate cheeseburger to me. <laughs>